I will read in your hearing from the Christian Standard Bible. I don't know about you, but I still love reading from my paper Bible every now and then. But if you are sitting there, maybe pull up your version app on your phone or another tab on your screen and go to your favorite virtual digital Bible. The word of the Lord reads, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. May the Lord add a rich blessing to the reading of his word. This is a powerful and an, and an important text. And as we think about what we are going to discuss this morning, I actually want to read some other verses within the book of Galatians, particularly because Paul is not writing this one line, this one verse, this one sentence in isolation. Uh, while our Bible might have these chapter and verse distinctions, when Paul wrote this letter to the churches in Galatia, they were all put together in one. And so i like to take you back, actually, to Galatians chapter one and verse six. The Bible says, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. This morning, I want to talk to us briefly under the title, A Different Gospel, A Different Gospel. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you are here. We are grateful to you for your willingness to commune and converse with us. And in this moment, God, we ask that you quiet our hearts, open our minds, touch our souls, that we might be able to have an encounter with you this morning, that we might be transformed by the renewing of our minds it's in Jesus' name that we ask that your spirit guide us into all truth. Amen. I'd like to thank Pastor Stout uh, and the team here for extending the invitation. It truly is a, a pleasure and a privilege to get to worship with you this morning. But this is not an easy sermon that I am coming to deliver. Even when Pastor Stout asked, you know, Claudia, can you preach on the equality of the, the equality we experience in Jesus Christ based on Galatians 3.28, I certainly accepted, but I knew in the back of my mind that there is so much to be said based on equality in Jesus Christ in the book 
of Galatians. And so this morning, I, I want you to wrestle with the fact, the reality that since its inception, America has purported an affinity and a commitment to Christianity, so much so that many consider America to be a Christian nation. A melting pot of cultures, languages, and religions, America is still perceived to be a nation that subscribes not just to Christianity, but the ideals of the Christian Bible. Reflecting on how in God we trust is printed on all U.S. currency, how citizens boldly declare in the Pledge of Allegiance that we are one nation under God, and how founding father and author of the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson, penned, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with these unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, causing America to possess several references to this Christian God in our constitutional documents. On the surface, it in fact appears that America is in fact a Christian nation. Interesting enough, historians and scholars have begun to challenge this notion, suggesting that America in fact is not a Christian nation and has never been, but rather that America is a capitalist nation committed to, co to, committed to manipulating Christianity to promote and protect its economic, political, militaristic, and social agendas. One of the first historians to articulate such a belief was Frederick Douglass. In his narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, this former slave recounts, quote, between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of the one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other, end quote. The author continues declaring with vehement conviction the anecdotal evidence that proves his proposition. He says, quote, I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land, end quote. Such an experience is not articulated without cursory reflection. In fact, Douglas further illuminates the irreconcilable duality of American Christianity by declaring that, quote, we have men stealers for ministers, women whippers for missionaries, the cr and cradle plunderers for church members. The man who wields the blood-clotted cowskin during the week fills the pulpit on Sunday and claims to be a minister of the meek and lowly Jesus. The man who robs me of my earnings at the end of each week meets me as a class leader on Sunday mornings to show me the way of life and the path of salvation. He who sells my sister for purposes of prostitution stands forth as the pious advocate of purity. He who proclaims it a religious duty to read the Bible, hear me, denies me the right of learning to read the name of God who made me. The warm defender of the sacredness of the family relation 
is the same that scatters whole families. Sundering husbands and wives, parents and children, sisters and brothers, leaving the hut vacant and the hearth desolate, end quote. For Douglas, it is not just that, that the Christianity practiced in America is a poor representation of the Christianity of the Bible, but that the Christianity of this land is the primary vehicle that the American institution of slavery arrived upon. Such historical and empirical realities are what Ruben Rosario Rodriguez, author of Racism and God Talk, A Latina Perspective, to, it causes him to ask a critical question in his book. If racism is a product of cultural factors and particular theological traditions are necessarily part of the cultural matrix that generates racism, to what extent do deep theological commitments foster or resist racist worldviews? Rodriguez asks these questions because he knows that at the heart of America's race issue is an issue of theology. Even Kim, Kevin M. Cruz relays this in his book, One Nation Under God, How Corporate America Invented Christian America. In his book, Cruz draws a seamless historical line from the 1930s and 40s all the way to the present, revealing the ways in which piety and patriotism were intentionally connected as a means of opposing Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal. Roosevelt, an explicitly Christian man in his beliefs, purported a responsibility of the government to love God and not forget your neighbor. This brought on what many call the social gospel or a kind of Christianity that was, quote, concerned less with personal salvation and more with the public good, end quote. There's a man named James W. Fifield Jr., and he met with several politicians, clergymen, and business owners immediately when Roosevelt decided to propose his New Deal. And Together, they determined that government involvement in the care and uplift of the poor, the vulnerable, and the socially disenfranchised was problematic. Cruz writes, quote, in a forceful rejection of the public service themes of the social gospel, they argued that the central tenet of Christianity remained the salvation of the individual. If any political and economic system fit with the religious teaching of Christ, it would have to be rooted in a similarly individualistic ethos. Nothing better exemplified such values, they insisted, than the capitalist system of free enterprise, end quote. Furthermore, Cruz writes, quote, they built a foundation for a new vision of America in which businessmen would no longer suffer under the rule of Roosevelt, but instead thrive in a phrase they popularized in a nation under God. One nation, sorry, under God. So that this idea of us being one nation under God literally did not come into the American fabric until around the 1930s and 40s in stark contrast and opposition to Roosevelt's New Deal or his government plan of trying to help and aid those who had either been poor, vulnerable, or systematically disenfranchised. 
This is why whenever you hear anyone that preaches or talks about the social truths in the gospel and how we serve a God that wants us to care about the oppressed, to care about the widow, to care about those who are less than, less fortunate than others, they literally want to oppose that and then decry that we are Marxists, that we are communists. Because American Christianity, evangelicalism, has created this merging to where Christianity is intimately connected to capitalism. It's intimately connected to this free enterprise. It's intimately connected to individualism and one's right to access and acquire wealth at whatever means they deem. Fifield and others went on to become extremely wealthy as businessmen and clergy persons, purporting that this Christianity that prioritized individualism and the acquisition of significant wealth, regardless of the ways in which that wealth was amassed. In other words, from the time of slavery, America has practiced and purported a kind of Christianity that institutes chattel slavery and sanctions the wholesale violence associated because of the inherent economic value of it. After the legal abolishing of slavery, America simply reinvents their approach to amassing wealth through exploitation, but continues to justify such through perverted misinterpretations of scripture and Christianity. America and the Christian church's inextricable bond in their efforts of socio-political and economic exploitation remain the central beating heart that prevents either from extricating or dismantling the structural and systemic racism that exists within them. This complicity with racism, Jamar Tisby suggests, is what permits such injustice to continue. In his book, The Color of Compromise, Tisby writes, quote, the refusal to act in the midst of injustice is itself an act of injustice. Indifference to oppression perpetuates oppression, end quote. And the truth is that if we're going to reflect on the writings of Paul and in, in Galatians 3.28, then we must be honest with one another and admit that we currently reside in a country, in a church, in homes, and in families that have embraced a different gospel, a gospel that sanctions the separation of families at the border, a gospel that sanctions capital punishment, a gospel that prioritizes law and order, a gospel that preaches prosperity and selfishness. America is a nation that is preaching a different gospel. A different gospel that Paul comes to us in Galatians and declares is a distortion. In fact, the book of Galatians, Paul writes to several churches across Galatians and he finds them in a tumultuous time. This is not a unique experience to America. No, in the book of Galatians, we hear and see what it means when a nation embraces a distorted gospel. What happens when a nation embraces a distorted gospel? Paul writes in verse six of the very first chapter, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are 
troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. See, Paul is so opposed to any distortion to the gospel that he writes to them in verse nine, as we have said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. Wow. What is this contrary, distorted and different gospel that Paul is talking about? In chapter two, Paul writes of a hypocrisy that is happening between Christians who joined the faith by way of the Jews and those who joined the faith by way of the Gentiles. Paul has gotten word that the Jewish Christians are trying to force the Gentile Christians to become circumcised. They are suggesting that unless they participate in this Jewish custom as a sign of fidelity and belonging, then they cannot fully be partakers and participants in the family of God. This was causing Jews and Gentiles to not even sit, to not even sit and be in one another's space. Paul writes, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned for he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from John, from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. That's Bible. In other words, Jews were separating themselves from Gentiles. They did not want to be seen interacting with Gentiles all because they were refusing to be circumcised. These are not unbelievers. These are not men and women of heathen or pagan faiths. No, these are Christians who simply will not engage in the Jewish cultural customs demanded upon them. And Paul writes that if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul very explicitly rejects such teachings and has to remind these Christians that because they are no, uh, no longer under the law, but free in Christ by faith, that no longer are they subject to the ceremonial laws of Moses, but neither is anyone else, especially those who are outside of the Jewish cultural community. This is critical to understand because what white American Christianity has suggested is that not only is there a justification for slavery, a justification for economic exploitation, a justification for violence and capitalistic gain, but it has also suggested that there is a certain way that is most acceptable for any Christian that wants to come to Jesus Christ, that there is a, a way that's, that, that is, is usually attached to European modes of expression. So we don't clap when we worship. We don't play drums in our worship experiences. We don't do certain things that are assigned to certain cultures because we have demonized those things and demonized those modes of, of expression so as to articulate that if one wants to come to Jesus, you've got to come to Jesus like a European. You've got to come to Jesus like a white person. You've got to pray 
to, to, to practice your Christianity and worship this God in a certain way. And if you do not worship him that way, then you are not act, uh, accurately worshiping God. That's what we're doing right now. And what Paul is writing to us in the book of Galatians is that we have to be careful that we are not distorting the message of the gospel in favor of our cultural customs or even because of our bondage to certain religious beliefs. Because see, listen, this is the thing. It's not even just that it was problematic that the Jews were trying to impose upon the Gentiles a mode of, of, of worship, expression, and access to God that was antithetical to their culture. But rather, it was that the Jews were so hung up on their old religious beliefs that they had not yet even received the truth of the grace of Jesus Christ. They, in fact, were so hung up on the knowledge and the idea idea that because I, it's not enough to just be in Christ, but we must still follow these rules and regulations. And what Paul is trying to get them to understand is that you are free. What does the Bible say? Galatians 5 verse 1, my, my Bible says, for freedom, Christ set us free. So that it is in Christ that we are no longer bound to the law. For we were, we were at one point slaves to the law, right? That's what Paul writes in, in, in Galatians as well as in Romans, that we at one point were slaves to the law, but the law could not save us. And so because the law could not save us, literally Jesus comes, dies, so that we no longer have to die under the under the, what is it? The edict of the law for bloodshed must be given according to the law. And in Christ, we don't have to shed that blood. So that what we're, so that Paul is coming to them and saying, these cultural customs that you are trying to impose upon the Gentiles are antithetical to the grace that is available, that is antithetical to the freedom that is available in Jesus Christ. The same goes for right now. There are cultures and customs that have been demonized that, G that Paul is telling us right here in Galatians do not have to be demonized. Certain people do not have to access God the way that you access God in order for them to be saved, in order for them to have true worship, in order for them to come in contact with the Savior. So that it's critical that when we're talking about the gospel, we are talking about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're talking about how God condescended down and said, I want to be in relationship with you so badly that literally I'm going to give my life. And because of this, you are no longer bound to the things of this earth. There is a, a, a quote, uh, person by the name of Choi writes in her, in her book, Disciplined by Race, she says, quote, in other words, 
whiteness does not only limit the range of what is possible for Asian Americans, especially in terms of their identity, but whiteness molds, if not manipulates the choices of those identities themselves. As disciplined by whiteness, Asian Americans bear the social pressures of being habituated into certain identities that fit the social and cultural visions and assumptions of whiteness. This is what you need to hear and understand with that. Because we live in a racialized society, white people, black people, Asian people, Latino people, any person is disciplined by race. We are all impacted by this racial imagination that exists within our country. So that literally there is a molding and a manipulation that happens on each and every body. It's not just a limitation that happens to Asian bodies, but it is also a limitation that happens to white bodies, a limitation that happens to black bodies. So that this limitation is not just something that exists on the outside in this ethereal space, ethereal space, but it is something that we actively experience in the church. And so when we're talking about Galatians 3.28, and we come to a powerful verse in the Bible where Paul writes, there is no Jew or Greek, there is no slave or free, there is no male or female for since you are all one in Christ Jesus, Paul is literally saying that you in Christ are no longer bound by the earthly limitations, the earthly imaginations that are constantly seeking to mold and manipulate you and bind you into something that is antithetical to the person and image of God. So that in this way right now, I do not have to be bound by your imagination of blackness. I do not have to be bound by your imagination of what it means to be female. I do not have to be bound by what you think it means to be American. I do not have to be bound by what you think it means to be Adventist, but in Christ Jesus, I'm free for Christ has set me free indeed. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is that there is nothing, no culture, no custom, no tradition, no rule and no ritual that I am obligated to keep that is not in accordance with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that I have to do unless it is in accordance with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why does this matter? This matters because as I was sitting here with this text, I was, I was, I don't want to say troubled, but I was disturbed because listen, when we come to this text and say, there's no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no slave or free, no male or female. What does that mean? So my identities are very real. My blackness is very real. You can see that there is blackness on me. You can see that I am a woman. You can, you can you maybe tell, maybe not right now, that I'm Adventist. And so there are certain things, identities that are on me. And God, what does it mean when you're telling me that in Christ, these identities are gone? And as I was wrestling with it, the Lord revealed to me that it is not that in Christ, I am not 
allowed to be black or, or I'm not allowed to express my blackness in, in its greatest manifestation. But rather, it is that Paul is not talking about the disillusion of gender. He's not talking about the disillusion of race. He's not talking about the disillusion of social hierarchies. What Paul is talking about is the man-made barriers that exist between these entities. Paul is talking about the restrictions and the limitations that cause men to be above women. He's talking about the restrictions and limitations that cause uh, 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 free men to be above slaves. He's not. Ta he's talking about. Uh, uh, the limitations that caused Jews to believe that they were better than Greeks. He's not talking about the fact, oh, it's so good to me. I hope it's good to you this morning. He's not talking about the fact that you can't be Jewish. He's not talking about the fact that you can't be a Gentile so that when I come to the text, there's nothing in here that says that I cannot come to God in the fullest expression of my blackness, that I cannot come to God in the fullest expression of my culture, that I cannot come to God in the fullest expression of my femininity, but rather that there is nothing that is that, that, that sanctions or permits anybody to believe that they have greater access to God or a superior your access to God because they are white or because they are male or because they are Adventists. But instead, it is the idea that in Jesus Christ is literally the, the, the dissolution of all these barriers. And instead, we all come together and are on equal playing field. Matthew Henry's commentary says the law indeed made a difference between Jew and Greek, giving the Jews on many accounts the preeminence that also made a difference between bond and free, master and servant, and between male and female, the males being circumcised. But it is not so now. They all stand on the same level and are all one in Christ Jesus, as the one is not accepted on the account of any national or personal advantages he may enjoy above the other. So neither is the other rejected for the want of them, but all who sincerely believe in Christ of what nation or sex or condition soever they be are accepted by him and become the children of God through faith in him. So that F.F. Bruce writes, it is not their distinctiveness, but their inequality of religious role that is abolished in Christ Jesus. There's nothing wrong with coming to God in the fullness of your German culture, the fullness of being Polish, the fullness of being English, the fullness of being Italian, the fullness of being Jewish, the fullness of being Nigerian and Black American and Jamaican and Trinidadian and, and uh, uh, Bermudian and Cuban and Mexican and, and Ecuadorian and Argentinian. There is nothing that says that these kinds of distinctions that naturally exist because of where I grew up and who I grew up around, that distinctiveness is not dissolved in Christ. You keep that distinctiveness. You keep that uniqueness. In fact, God wants you to bring that distinctiveness and that uniqueness to your relationship with him. Rather, what is abolished 
is the inequality that society seeks to establish by assigning value to some distinctions and not others. What's also important for you all to know, for us to wrestle with, is that during this time, there was <coughs> this, this, this threefold Thanksgiving prayer that, that the Jews would give. And basically, Jews would come in to prayer in the morning, and they would say, God, I want to thank you so much that you did not make me a Gentile. God, I want to thank you that you did not make me a slave. And God, I want to thank you that you did not make me a woman. And they would further go on to suggest that it was God's favor that brought them up to, or made them, created them to exist in this, this, this uh, stratosphere of superiority. And what Paul writes is that that is a distorted gospel. Any idea that there are certain people that are superior or inferior is a distorted gospel. It is not true. It is a different gospel. And it is something that is not pleasing to God. So much so that Paul declares a curse on anybody who articulates a gospel that seeks to assert the superiority of anybody over another, a superiority, one, that influences or inhibits their access to God. So that God, so that Paul is literally saying, every person, regardless of their distinctiveness, should have a clear access way to God. They should not be forced to assimilate. They should not be forced to take on certain ideals and practices and customs and beliefs that are not unique to them and things that are not central or, or mandatory to the gospel of Jesus Christ. G. Walter Hansen writes, Gentiles, quote, Gentiles were being forced to become Jews to be fully accepted by Jewish Christians. Paul's argument is that Gentiles do not have to become Jews to participate fully in the life of the church. Neither do blacks have to become white or females become male for full participation in the life and ministry of the church. In other words, family, when we come to the beauty and the power of Galatians 3, verse 28, this verse is not some ethereal text that just exists and is trying to suggest that, oh, we are all equal in Jesus Christ, amen and amen. No, Paul is directly addressing the ethnocentrism and the xenophobia and the, and the racism and the social hierarchy that was literally at play in the early church of Galatia. He is addressing the ways in which this kind of thinking distorted the gospel and was pulling people away from the truth that in Jesus Christ, there all meet at the feet of the cross, that in Jesus Christ, 
You do not have an upper hand on me based on your race, your religion, or your gender. So that if we're going to talk about together that there is equality in Jesus Christ, the power of that is, is the way in which it is lived out in the earth. The way that we experience that with one another in the lifeblood of the church. Remember, this verse exists within a context. So in the same way that this conversation between the Jews and the Gentiles and their separation and their, and their racial tension happened in, in, chap, in Galatians chapter two. In Galatians chapter five, Paul writes, I say then, walk by the spirit and you certainly will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the spirit and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you do not know so that you do not do what you want. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against these things. Paul is not writing the fruit of the spirit and the command to walk in the spirit in isolation or within the idea that this is necessary for your individual piety, your individual spirituality. Paul is writing the fruit of the spirit to declare that racial tension is not something that you can dismantle and oppose in the flesh. He's writing and saying that this distorted gospel that suggests that some persons are superior to others is not something that you can dismantle in the flesh. He's saying that you cannot come into true community uh, regardless of nationality and culture and religion and gender in the flesh, but only in the spirit can these things be done. So that when the Lord is calling us, so that, that not, not even that, so that the truth of the book of Galatians, <clears throat> I'm done. The truth of the book of Galatians is that in Jesus Christ, we are free from the, from the social earthly imaginations and limitations of this earth. We are no longer bound by the ways in which society seeks to, to assert some as superior and others as inferior. But furthermore, in the person of Jesus Christ, I do not have to assimilate. In the person of Jesus Christ, I do not have to become something that I am not. In the person of Jesus Christ, all of the, the sins and the things that caused humanity to separate in the first place are dissolved so that humanity might experience and be participants in the ministry of reconciliation. And this work, this ministry work of reconciliation is something that can only be done in the spirit. Something that actually, according to Paul, must be received for the work of reconciliation and the dissolution of these barriers is not something that I have to actually work towards, but something that already exists in the person of Jesus Christ. So that when I receive Jesus Christ, 
I receive this inheritance. When I receive Jesus Christ, I've been, as Paul writes in Galatians, I then do not use my freedom as an opportunity for self, but I use it as an opportunity to serve others in love. My prayer is that we walk in the spirit and not in the flesh that we receive the freedom that is that has been so graciously given to us by Jesus Christ that we might be able to by the by, by his spirit produce his fruit and engage in the ministry of reconciliation for in Christ there is no Jew or Greek slave nor free male nor female for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, God, we are so grateful to you for your sacrifice. Because God, you sacrificed your life for us. We are no longer bound to the law. But God, we are set free by your grace. We are called righteous by faith. And so God, right now we are believing and we receive that because we are in Christ Jesus, we are no longer bound or restricted or limited to the barriers that separate humanity from one another, whether that be by race or religion or gender. God, we do not subscribe to the barriers that exist within the society and within this earth. We do not subscribe to the liminalities of humanity. God, we do not subscribe to a distorted theology, a distorted gospel that suggests that some are superior and others are inferior. No, God, we come to you and receive the freedom of the grace of Jesus Christ. We come to you, God, believing that we are free in you, free to no longer exist and operate by these earthly norms, by, by these earthly customs, but instead now free to receive your spirit that we might walk in the spirit and produce the fruit of the spirit. For God, we know that it is not possible for us to dismantle any of these kinds of systems in our own strength, in our own flesh. But instead, God, it is only by the spirit that you are working in us both to will and to do according to your good pleasure. So God, because you have set us free, do not let us allow our freedom freedom to be used as an opportunity for individual spirituality. But God, may we serve one another in love. May we become ministers of reconciliation. May we begin to truly manifest the freedom and the power of being in relationship with one another in Christ, that because we abide in you, and you abide in us, that these kinds of earthly sinful manifestations no longer have to be a chain on our lives, on our religion, on our faith, on our way of being. We praise you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name I pray this. Amen.